Good morning, viewer two listeners. This is Ron Bayman of the Healthy Planet Action Coalition, HPAC, H-P-A-C. A few months ago, some of us at HPAC noticed that Reviewer 2 experienced a security breach orchestrated by arch-rival Challenging Climate. Normally, we would refrain from taking advantage of Reviewer 2, but we sense an opportunity we can't resist and are jumping into the breach. For your listening pleasure, we offer this discussion about the recent Climate Overshoot Commission report between Chris Field, Stanford professor and advisor, and advisor to the Climate Overshoot Commission, and Mike McCracken, HPAC Steering Circle member and former executive director of the Office of the U.S. Global Change Research Program. HPAC's tagline is Cool, Reduce, and Remove. Many additional recordings and other materials relevant to these goals are available on our website, www.healthyplanetaction.org. We hope you enjoy this episode. The way I think about it is there are a whole bunch of theories of change about how we move the needle on climate action. And IPCC, for example, is is based on a theory of change that says prior authorization from governments is the pathway to delivering messages with impact. And I think the theory of change for the Overshoot Commission is one you might think of as moral authority that former and in some cases still active senior leaders in government don't have the authority to you know pull the strings of power directly anymore but have a license to speak at a broader more general level of, about things that ought to be prioritized and i think this theory of change is being tested but given how difficult it's been to you know assemble accelerated climate action this one seemed very reasonable to me and this is a topic where I would say authorization to speak from from a kind of official capacity within a government or for a scientific organization actually been somewhat challenging. And so coming from the outside as senior thoughtful leaders who have some credibility and reason that their views ought to be paid attention to makes a great deal of sense. And I think they did a good job of operating in a way that kind of reinforced that core of credibility. The, the commissioners were uh, really widely respected people and mostly from government and senior roles within WTO, where Pascal Lamy had his, his uh, highest profile position, a couple of NGO folks and a couple of, of academics, but, but mostly coming from this, what you might think of as the elder community. And they had the three science advisors who really you know, we're relied on extensively to kind of set the stage of what we know and what we don't know, of where the limits to knowledge and action are. And then they they had really influential group of youth climate activists gathered from around the world who weren't members of the commission, but who raised an important voice from younger generation that was influential in in the directions that report of the commission finally took. So I think they did a credible job of making the case their voice ought to be listened to. Whether or not it is listened to, of course, is a work in progress, and we'll see where that goes. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that was interesting was the title of risk that was in their t- in the title of some of the things they, they talked about, and they focused out 
I mean, the scientific community has this decision framework of thinking about things and wanting high confidence. So it ends up at the center of various spreads of, of events. But then public community usually talks about risk, which is about worst plausible outcomes and how to be resilient to them and stuff. Did, did you notice a difference in decision framework between them sort of saying, wow, the risks are, are big compared to what I sort of see? Or was there any difference? Or did they just sort of say, well, we're going to accept what the scientists say and focus on the, the center results or something? It's a really good question. And, you know, I, again, the commission had sort of spun up and begin to operate by the time the science advisors came in. But I was struck by two aspects of the way the issues were framed. Uh, the first is that it has been, you know, really challenging to be forthright about the high and increasing probability that we're going to miss the targets in the Paris Agreement. And I think that you know, within especially the NGO community, there's a, a lot of adherence to the idea that even the 1.5 goal is is still achievable when none of the evidence is really pointing even close to that direction. And so, you know, the authorization to even talk about thinking beyond being able to, to stabilize at 1.5. I don't, I don't know if at recent COPs people have really been around the idea that 1.5 is still alive. And I think it's it's important to acknowledge that it's technically feasible, but it certainly feels like we've reached a point at which any responsible entity ought to be having serious conversations about, think about what we will do if we reach the point where the 1.5 target or the below 2C target in the Paris Agreement are passed and and if the trends we're on now continue or sort of blown through. And so I think that framing of a, of a license to speak to this issue that's been almost off limits is, is really important. One of the things that I thought was really interesting in the way the report came out is that there is a really strong emphasis on cutting emissions. And many of the commissioners felt really strongly that it's important to maintain the narrative around the technical feasibility of, of the 1.5 target. And if you read through the report, what you see is, you know, an ongoing tension between the uh, recognition of the importance of cutting emissions and, and at least the technical feasibility of 1.5, but the relevance of, of putting pieces in place to at least not be totally unprepared in the event that we miss the targets. So one of the strange things about this 1.5 and the IPCC way of calculating it, it's a sort of a timed lag to decadal average over the globe measure when the current situation is we may have a year of 1.5 in the next few years, 1.5 exceedance. And most impacts don't have much to do with what's happening about the time lagged metric of you know, a decadal average metric of global average temperature. So was there any questioning of this metric and, and how they came to 1.5? And I mean, the Paris choice of 1.5 was sort of arbitrary anyway. Yeah. It's, I mean, was there any questioning of this metric in, in thinking about it? No. You know, I think the uh, position commission took is that our guidance is the guidance in the Paris Agreement. And you know, I got to admit that I, I've personally been surprised that 
given the wording of the Paris Agreement, we talk so much about 1.5 and not about well below two, which is what I read is really targeted in the Paris Agreement. And, and of course, the Paris Agreement does speak to the need for efforts to assess the feasibility of, of 1.5 or pursue 1.5. And, and I think that makes sense to me to, you know, have an agreed upon target and make that a, a starting point for discussions. But as you say, Mike, there, there are a number of reasons that 1.5 is arbitrary in its choice and certainly eclectic in the, in the way it's defined. For me personally, the motivation for the Overshoot Commission is to put efforts in place to explore what we're going to do if the amount of warming is substantially larger than the world is is okay uh, accommodating. And the issue, I don't think, should be that there are a whole bunch of strategies that get deployed as soon as 1.5 based on a particular UNFCCC definition gets breached. But what we do need to do is be prepared to make increasing investments in dealing with overshoot as it emerges. From my perspective, we're already in a situation where we're seeing unacceptable levels of damage. We ought to be deploying some of the things that are described in the Overshoot Commission report. So they came up with this this acronym CARE for their four sort of recommendations. And, and the C stands for cut emissions. And it was interesting that they really said phase out fossil fuels. I mean, they really made it clear uh-huh. that where they, they were aiming. I mean, it would be helpful if, if this sort of mitigation approach could actually get started. I mean, the emissions keep up and we're still at whatever, 80% of the energy coming from fossil fuels or something. Do you, do you think this group saying that might have extra influence or they might do it? Or are we just still going to keep struggling and have to wait for new technology just to overwhelm the problem eventually? Well, if it's okay, I, I want to plant a small advertisement. Another report that's going to be released next month, I'm involved with as well as one's from the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And it's also about accelerating action on climate. And the key theme of that report is how you build a durable political coalition around climate action. And what strikes me about the emphasis on phasing out fossil fuels is that, that that's a concept that sounds good in a kind of a technical feasibility world. I and mean, you can calculate, you know, the technical readiness level of all the alternative technologies. But in real world of existing politics and finance and electoral cycles, it, it actually is really hard to see dramatic acceleration on the path of of phasing out fossil fuels. And what this American Academy report lays out is is some of the options for accelerating the decrease in emissions in a way that will likely ultimately phase out the use of fossil fuels, but doesn't sort of require it as a starting point. And I have to say that in the in the formulation of the C, I personally advocated with the commission and with the commissioners for a for a decrease emissions from fossil fuel as the primary objective rather than phase out fossil fuels. And I think we we have some opportunities to just be a lot more committed to, to building durable partnerships that can actually work rather than aspirational goals that are going to be a lot more challenging to achieve. Okay, so the A was then 
to adapt or increase adaptation and things. And it, it was really interesting. I guess, though, one wonders if they recognize that there's limits to how much you can do on some of these things or what that is going to require, right? Um, I mean, I sort of didn't notice very much focus at all on sea level rise and what might happen along coastlines in the report, which is something that seems we're headed toward as we destabilize glacial streams and stuff. And and the very high heat index and other things or something like that. I mean, uh, they sort of talk a lot about adaptation, but it's going to be a real challenge to, to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, my sense is that a really, really important theme through all of the overshoot narrative is the theme of mitigation deterrence. And all of you know, back in the early days of discussion about climate change in the 80s and 90s, there was a lot of concern that discussion about adaptation really should be kind of out of bounds because the idea that you could adapt to a changing climate would mean that people wouldn't invest in decreases in emissions that really solve the problem. And as we begin to look at carbon dioxide removal, it's very much the same kind of arguments are made. And, and of course, with soil geoengineering, the same kinds of arguments are made. And so I, th I think it is important to recognize that this narrative of the risk of mitigation deterrence runs through all of the overshoot technologies, approaches. But it's also important to appreciate that I think the commissioners are aware of the idea that not only are there physical limitations to how much you can do with any of the technologies, but there are a wide variety of social and economic reasons. Almost any conceivable pathway that's going to work is going to require some kind of a mixture of approaches. And, and I don't think there was the intention to say we can adapt massive amounts of warming to, you know, two and a half, three, four degrees of warming. But there also wasn't a lot of focus on what more ambitious adaptation strategy would look like. That's a compelling need for the future is, is really figuring out what, what happens if we dramatically increase the finance that's available for adaptation. I mean, I remember well, because during the first national assessment, you know, they said, you're not, you can't talk about adaptation. In fact, you shouldn't even be talking about impacts and everything. We're going we're gonna to have it under control before that now. Yeah. So the R in, in their CARE initiative was to remove, and there was a lot of focus on the natural potential for removal or removing into the biosphere and stuff. You're, you're an ecologist. <laughs> I keep hearing towards there was what, just a Guardian article saying most of these carbon offset things aren't working very well. What do you think is the real potential for getting nature to take up more carbon and stuff. They, they talked about the green wall in Africa, which sounded interesting, but what do you think is the real potential? Can we, and how long is it going to take? Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the Guardian articles have been about the carbon crediting for avoided deforestation, which isn't carbon removal, that's decreasing emissions. And, and of course, the challenge is, two challenges. One is that we really need to find a way to stop Deforestation is one of the most critical environmental crises that the planet faces in terms of habitat and biological diversity. And it also was a you know, major source of emissions. Still the case that 15% of emissions or so come from, from deforestation. And while it isn't CO2 removal, it's something we got to figure out how to do. And, and we have to figure out if we're going to do it through market mechanisms, 
how to how to credit the actions in a in a way that people trust and and believe. And as the Guardian has pointed out, or as there was an article in Science Magazine just a couple of weeks ago, arguing that if avoided deforestation is credited by comparison with a counterfactual of what would have happened, you know, without these credits being purchased, that's when they don't deliver. And there is a real problem there that needs to be solved. We also know that um, there are lots of places around the world that used to have forests that no longer have forests, and they're really wonderful opportunities for bringing those forests back in, in some places, but not in others. And it depends on population is, how much the climate's changed, what the land use dynamics are across the space. And if you, a couple of years ago, my group published a, a paper summarizing all of the published results on how much carbon removal we might get from natural climate solutions in the rest of the 21st century. And those numbers range from 100 tons of CO2 equivalent to about 1,500 tons of CO2 equivalent. And if you put that in the context of the range of removals that the IPCC in 1.5 report said would be necessary for stabilizing at 1.5, that's kind of 600 to 1,000. So the, the published numbers are 100 to 1,500. And almost all of those published numbers are what I would call technically feasible. And I think that socially, economically, culturally feasible is for the low hand. In, in the review paper that my group did, we argued that it would, might be realistic to get something like 200 billion tons of CO2 equivalent in the rest of the century. And that is contribution from natural climate solutions that could be made with improved management of existing forests and soils, and with a really dedicated effort to build forests back in areas where they've been removed. So that's a meaningful contribution. That's a significant amount of, of the carbon removals that are required. It's, it's not a very huge fraction of the total emissions budget for the rest of the century. That, that's, that's the land aspect of it. You didn't that's the land aspect, right. One, one of the big things that we're all tangled up in now for carbon removals is, is this question of you know, how to do the crediting and you have to have title to the land to get carbon credits. If you do it in the ocean, who gets the credits and, and how do you do the monitoring and verification? I, uh, I personally am very optimistic about the prospects for meaningful contributions from not only land ecosystems, but coastal and ocean as well. You know, potentially at the scale of, you know, maybe doubling that 200 billion tons number. Again, putting it in the context of our overall emissions, which are, you know, order of 40 billion tons a year. It's an important, but not quantitatively dominant element of the work that needs to be done. Okay. And then, then finally, the one that this group probably most interested in is the E, which was to explore. It was interesting that at that press conference, this E aspect seemed to be the one that got most of the questions. And I guess one of the sort of surprises, well, I guess the first thing that's impressive is they actually put it on the whole agenda and included it, where IPCC sort of has been, seems to have been somewhat more reluctant about that. So that was impressive. And then they talked about a moratorium on deploying, but 
But if you read their research part, it said you can go all the way up to outdoor experiments as long as you're not call, causing something like significant harm to transboundary or something like that, which was quite interesting. I mean, that's quite, I mean, it wasn't sort of just ruling it into saying only in the laboratory kind of thing, which other things have done. So that was interesting. Um, I, I have two questions and then we'll get to the rest. One is the scenario they seem to use in evaluating solar intervention, climate intervention, was wait until there's a severe problem and then do some big, sharp, sudden drop. During that time, you do a lot of research to learn a little bit more or something, as opposed to start early, small, and sort of learn as you go and not face this potential dramatic cooling effort sometime in the future, probably too late because it's after the emergency has happened, an ice sheet is flowing or whatever. So did they consider more scenarios than just sort of the emergency response kind of version? So, so there was a lot of uncertainty among commissioners about whether solar geoengineering ought to be considered at all. And there were some commissioners who at the outset really felt that the risk of mitigation deterrence was simply too great, or the risk of unintended consequences was too great to even put forward an agenda that recommends additional research. And there were also voices saying that if we want a comprehensive understanding of the options for dealing with overshoot, it's just not responsible to take a careful look at all the options. And that tension was very near the surface throughout the discussions. And it's a little bit surprising that the, that the solar geoengineering stuff got in there at all, given how strongly some people felt that it, it shouldn't be a part of the agenda at the outset. So I think the answer to your question about how it might be deployed once more is learned about it didn't get pursued partly because I I don't think the commission, you know, wanted its findings to indicate that that its advocacy for research and thinking about deployment of solar geoengineering had really gone farther than it had gone. And I think that what the commission wanted to do was be able to crack open the doorway to increasing progress in solar geoengineering research in a way that didn't, by its specificity, foreclose as many options as it opened. And and I, I read this as being a reasonable way to go in the context of what the commissioners regarded as the kinds of especially political forces that, you know, going to be challenging any steps to move forward with solar geoengineering research. So, and then my second question is actually about something that seems to come up constantly, and I don't understand it as a scientist which basically says, they say, unwanted and unforeseen consequences is something to be greatly worried about, or that there are very large uncertainties. And and it seems to me there's two things about it. One is we have sort of small, well, a series of volcanic eruptions over time um, that are of different sizes that models seem to represent pretty well. And, and I don't think we sort of see those kinds of consequences. And then the question that sort of shows the model seem to be working pretty well and be a good tool to look at it. And, and then uh, the other issue is it's a question of what they're comparing to. I mean, it seems to me without solar intervention, 
we're headed into dramatic, I mean, 2.6 degrees C or something. We're headed, headed into dramatically more serious situations. We've been getting surprises along the way and very much unwanted consequences. What is the reference point they use for talking about that? Is it compared to a baseline of pre-industrial or something? Or are they doing the comparison with respect to what happened in the future without it? I think the important contribution of the Overshoot Commission on this is, is to push in the direction of increased investment in solar geoengineering research. I, I take the overall tone of your question and saying, well, why aren't they more explicit about you know, the current understanding of the profile of, of risks and benefits? And why aren't they more explicit about what's often called the risk-risk framing, where the risks of solar geoengineering are compared with the risks of not doing solar geoengineering, which is the, the risks of an overheated world. And certainly all of those were discussed. But, but I think the starting point for many of the commissioners was that this is an unacceptable topic from the perspective of mitigation deterrence. And, you know, I'm sure all of you have encountered the idea that that intentionally polluting the atmosphere just is, is kind of really ethically and morally different than decreasing emissions greenhouse gases and requires some kind of a different standard. So both of those considerations made it challenging to take even baby steps into advocacy for village geoengineering research. And personally, I think the commission deserves a lot of credit for having really kind of thoughtfully tackled these issues and proposed a pathway that, that does let us learn more things from more research and open a door to figuring out whether this is a set of technologies that we might want to develop for deployment at some point. So I, I think it's, it's important to understand this as a as a step in the direction of increasing knowledge rather than as saying, why didn't they go further? And they didn't go further because really scary thing for most of the commissioners, as it should be. It's sort of, it's sort of, I mean, it's just sort of the only way to offset further warming. Um, I mean, mitigation is going to take a long time to get to net zero emissions or zero emissions, and CDR takes a long time to build up. Just seems ignoring a path of trying to start and slowly learn as you go uh, while you're trying to keep the temperature about where it is or slightly lower uh, would be a you know a sort of a more rational pathway but you know, okay. let, me, let me bring you back to your comment about adaptation though and in the early 90s when when we started talking about adaptation in national climate assessment and the IPCC there's a lot of skepticism about whether that was okay because of uh, concerns about mitigation deterrence. And I think that we really need to talk about all of these overshoot concepts, technologies, in the context of this deeply rooted narrative about risks of mitigation deterrence. You know, at least for me, pushing in the direction of saying we need to understand more about these things, what their limits are, what their risks are, is a really important way to advance the conversation in a way that brings the climate change activists, the governments, as, as well as the um, whole family of entities that are responsible for the technologies, the greenhouse gas technologies, the renewable energy technologies, and the, uh, the overshoot technologies in what I hope will be a more constructive conversation in the future. Good. 
Okay, thanks. Let's see. Others, if you have questions, please, I guess, raise your hand and we'll uh, get in there. Herb, do you want to start? You seem first on sure. my list. Thanks, Mike. And thanks. Really appreciate your your comments. When I started work, uh, talking with Mike and he's indicated that he knew you and we'd like to invite you, which was you know very exciting. And then all of a sudden, as these things tend to be, next thing I knew, popped up in, on my computer, a uh, webinar with uh, with you and Sam Harris. And then I saw a Wall Street Journal article a couple of days ago about the latest shenanigans involving Exxon. And there you were quoted in the middle of the article. So I admire the breadth of your climate work and your media connections. So I guess I think it would be fair to say that for many of us here, our, our concern is these days, certainly it wouldn't be the case a decade ago, maybe, is more, we're more concerned about pooling deterrence and we are about mitigation deterrence, essentially, that, that, you know, the sort of the, you know, that's flipped in the other direction. And, uh, but I guess my question to you is that, you know, I follow, we, we at HPAC followed the Overshoot Commission pretty closely. We had Jesse Reynolds here way back in January at the beginning of the commission activities and so forth. And the final report by recommending, I don't have the language in front of me, but essentially, the, the language on the, the E part of care started off with the recommendation for a moratorium or moratoria. And, you know, and then the language moved to research. And when I looked, I Googled, you know, a simple Google search to see how the media were, were picking up the report. You know, I was disappointed that it seemed most of the major media were, were mostly ignoring it. But whether it's the major media like The Guardian or uh, some of the more specialized climate publications, were not always, but many of them had articles that essentially the headline was, you know, commission calls for a moratorium on geoengineering. And I guess my concern is that that perception, and, you know, we all know how few people actually read the substance of a report, may lead to setting back the cause of research for cooling because of how it was, you know, formulated and articulated and put into, into the, you know, to the language in the report. and. I don't know if that was maybe part of the intention of, you know, as you've indicated, some of your commission members, you know, may have not have been comfortable even going as far as the report did, or whether that may be an inadvertent consequence of how it was worded. So I'd just like to get your, your feedback on that. It is a real good question. I agree with the overall framing that you presented. I should emphasize that this is a consensus report and, and all of the commissioners were okay with the recommendations. And, you know, personally, I, I feel like the, the recommendations around solar radiation management really do advance the ambition to learn more about the technology. And I recognize that much of the media coverage did emphasize the, the moratorium part. And the media outlets that cover this have a, have a perspective. But I think that there haven't been very many major reports that have been explicit about the value of additional research, and, and especially in the context of overshoot. You know, I didn't really speak to this before, but, but my sense is that in many ways, the most valuable contribution of the Overshoot Commission is transition us to a conversation about overshoot. 
And that once you're in that conversation about overshoot, then you really need to think about the whole family of technologies. And in that sense, I think the idea that there's a recommendation for a moratorium on solar geoengineering deployment is less important than that solar geoengineering ought to be part of the portfolio of responses that we should be investing in and understanding more about. I hope you're right in terms of that's how it's perceived. That's all. I, you know, the report did strike a balance. Um, my concern is just, you know, the, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, in next week you see a, an announcement from an alliance of anti-geoengineering groups, you know, going around to every major nation on the planet demanding they institute a moratorium the way that Mexico did a few months ago. That's, that's my concern, you know, but maybe yeah, it's okay. too late. <laughs> I, I, I don't disagree with that, but I, I would say that that the uh, media outlets that have the traditionally strongest reluctance about solar geoengineering were critical of the report for its uh, advocacy for additional research, rather than saying, oh, they agree with us. But I didn't see too many of the anti-geoengineering organizations say, oh, they agree with us. That, that's true. <laughs> and, it, and it allowed quite a range of research. It's interesting. Okay, uh, Robert. Thanks. Thanks very much, Chris. The Climate Overshoot Commission has taken this tactical view that advancing the advocacy for research can be has to be framed in this cautious way of accepting a moratorium on deployment. And, and that seems to make sense in the context that all of the technologies do need more research before they'd be ready for, for field deployment. But it's it just illustrates the political context that you're working in, as you've been saying. And I just want to dive more into this concept of mitigation deterrence that you've been using, because it just a, seems to me to be a fundamentally flawed concept. Because if you look at what can mitigate climate change, then increasing albedo does help to mitigate the risk of extreme weather events the risk of temperature rise, the risk of systemic disruption, but realistic prospects of emission reduction actually don't mitigate any of those risks. And so we've got, and, and all of those risks bring immense suffering. So we've got this ethical dilemma here that people are misusing this concept of mitigation in a way that will allow massive suffering in the in the coming years and and disruption of our system. So I offer that as a comment and be interested in your response. I think an important concept to keep in mind when you when you think about what's motivating the arguments about mitigation deterrence or or it's it's often called moral hazard. It's what I regard as an inappropriate focus on being able to assign blame to fossil energy companies for the climate crisis. And and I think that as much as anything, the, the motivating concern that drives people to worry about the moral hazard is that somehow the oil and gas and coal companies escape the blame that, that they deserve. You know, it's hard to understand the intensity of the concerns about solar geoengineering unless you make that a part of the background that you start from. And I think that 
does set us up to, you know, potentially live in a world where we see more damages than we should because we're not executing on all the technologies that we should be. And it's a, I think it's a frustrating part of the of the narrative. It's one that's really it's it's difficult to deal with from the context of the science and engineering approaches that most of us start from. And it's one that I mean personally I hope would be a real focus of the research because really well designed social science experiments should be able to get you the answer on how important mitigation deterrence is or isn't. I mean, the moral hazard issue of sliding back to fossil fuels just doesn't seem all that practical, given all the technology advances and the economic benefits of the new technologies that are coming on. So it's, I'm wondering if sort of the moral hazard argument might go away over time or not keep persisting, but it's, it's interesting you say it may remain. I, I, I would be surprised. I, I think. I think it's really central to the way large fraction of the climate activist community thinks about the future, and you know, and especially the community that, that thinks about solutions to climate crisis being essentially about wealth redistribution. And you know, a lot of concern that that solar geoengineering lets the wealthy countries stay wealthy when they to redistribute, and, and you know, I'm certainly not. You're advocating for a redistributional approach, but I think it is a really important thread in climate approach that the Global South takes. And the environmental justice communities have a lot of voices. Clive. Thank you. I just want to see if you can tell me if I've got things wrong here, Chris. Th thanks for you know, putting your presentation. So I totally agree with what Robert Tulip just said. We know that the West Antarctic ice sheet passed its point of no return in, I think, about 2014, nearly 10 years ago. And so that's going to collapse without, you know, some kind of cooling effort. So they seem to be quite happy for that to, that to go ahead. It's more important. For, so it seems to be more important to them to piggyback their agenda of redistribution and put lots of people, you know, basically make most uh settlements at sea level uninhabitable within the coming decades uh, uh, so that they can pursue their their redistribution uh, ideology and what is it about them that they cannot see what everybody else sees last year apparently china was working very hard to build two quiet power stations every week because they need the energy for all this you know manufacturing and metal ore processing they expect to be doing for us so that we can build our renewable machines. Why is it they can't see what everybody else is seeing and just recognize reality and, and live in this sort of never, never land of hope and which is just utterly off from, from reality? Have I got an extreme view here? Am I seeing it wrong? What's going on? I mean, they seem to be either clueless or utterly irresponsible, not to be even research, not to even allow research in solar geoengineering. So people like me, have to do this in our spare time, in our own personal resources, yeah. doing the best we can to see how to re remove methane from the atmosphere, looking at all the chemistry and so forth, and looking to see how to make benign aerosols that could you know, contribute to the marine cloud yeah. brightening work that people are, are doing to actually cool the oceans. Yeah. And where am I going wrong here, please? Well, I, I don't disagree with any of the things you said, and I, I don't want to sort of lay all of the responsibility for the pushback on um, 
entities that think that that economic redistribution is path to success. I, you know, at, at Stanford, my colleague Mark Jacobson is an incredibly outspoken advocate for you know a transition to 100% wind, water, and solar system within the next decade or so, and and you know argues from a technical perspective that that that's feasible. We don't we don't need these other technologies. And, and there's certainly many voices in the scientific community that are saying similar things. I would like to make one observation about where I'm seeing a big contrast between the stratospheric aerosol uh, philosophy and the marine cloud brightening. And, and it seems like social pushback on marine cloud brightening has been much, much less than it has been on stratospheric aerosols, even though there's compelling evidence that Marine cloud brightening, you know, may not be able to deliver that much cooling. It's certainly possible that there are important lessons to learn from the marine cloud brightening experiments so far, which have mainly been interpreted as, you know, local in scale, focused on protecting the Great Barrier Reef, for example, rather than fit the global climate system. Even though, you know, one could make the argument that influence of the marine cloud brightening experiments that have been done is at least as big and much bigger than than the than the field experiments with stratospheric aerosols that, in general, have not occurred. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you, Ron. Thank you, thank you, Mike, and and thank you, Chris, very much for for joining us. And I'm sorry that, in a way, you. You've entered the den of, <laughs> of you know, pro-cooling folks here. So we're, we're kind of piling on. So let me make it clear that I'm coming at this partly, you know, you guys asked me to speak to what the commission said, and I'm happy to do that. My role in, in group of science advisor really was to help people see that there are opportunities and even responsibilities to be serious about the solar geoengineering agenda. So I think that, you know, in the context of the commission, I was coming at them as an advocate for cooling technology. I'm an economist, political economist, and I, and I come from the left. I'm a radical economist. So I, I very much favor redistribution. In fact, I don't think uh, there's any way to achieve a zero greenhouse in any kind of reasonable time frame without some kind of mandatory regime of transfer of funding and resources. I did a paper that calculated you need $4 trillion just to offset the revenue for petroleum-related exports of countries that depend on those exports for over 10% of their export foreign exchange. So, you know, the economic constraints, I hear you saying the same thing, that they're, they're very, very real economic constraints to rapid transition uh, that bedevil even the most, you know, sympathetic actors. Like the example, the president of, of Ecuador recently, although they, they've apparently been able to reverse that somewhat, but they still did engage in drilling in the, in the rainforest because nobody ponied up even half of the revenue that expected to receive from that discovery of oil in the Amazon region there. So I did a calculation, and this is this is all IPCC numbers. So this is, you know, sort of the, the, the consensus view. 44 gigatons GHG by 2030, we need to get down to 44 to have a 66% chance of staying well below 2 degrees Celsius for the rest of the century. And the best estimates I've seen now is about 58 gigatons 
or so, again, anthropogenic right now, it would take straight line 3.2% per year, an average reduction per year, to get to 44 by 2030. And right now, the debate, as you, as I'm sure you know, is whether we've plateaued or not. There, there's, no, there's not even talk of declining GHG. It's all about, well, did plateau in 2024? The whole unreality of the entire viewpoint, and this is just to get to net zero. Well, it's, it's to get to 44 by 2030 and, and, and net zero, I think, by 2070 or something like that. Uh, IPCC report, <laughs> the, the, the actual data that the IPCC is providing that we're all seeing indicates that it's just not at all anywhere near realistically possible to get to that net zero goal, to stay below, below two degrees Celsius. So it just seems that we need, we need a breakthrough commission. We need a commission to just tell the truth about this whole, this whole fantasy, you know, preventing ever-increasing catastrophe. If the commissioners understood this, you know, that the moral hazard is in the other direction. The moral hazard is not cooling fast enough right now. And it doesn't have to be solar geoengineering. We have, in our report, we have 18 possible methods, you know, using soil, using white roofs, you know, all kinds of ways to prioritize cooling right now in whatever methods. And, you know, for the higher leverage, I agree with the responsible thing to do would be to, to gradually You'll start testing now and learn by do and, you know, go perhaps with a, a polar strategy for, for SRM or some of the higher leverage methods, but MCB, whatever it is, it just, it just seems that the, the priorities are all, are all wrong right now. They're, they're, they're all about emissions reduction and they're not about the real priority, which should be cooling right now. And that includes the devastation to the, the developing countries and the, the most vulnerable people are going to be the most affected. So all those people that are worried about climate justice, injustice is not doing the cooling right away. I don't know how many of you go to the UNFCCC COPS, but it's, it's amazing there how much of the emphasis is on, oh, if we, we just get serious about this, we, we can have emissions by 2030. Uh, we can hit net zero by 2050. And, and, the evidence base for that, as you say, is um, non-existent. And in fact, all the evidence is pointing in other directions. The reason that I think this Overshoot Commission report is so important is that it really is the first international product. I think it started out with expectation that would say we're headed for overshoot and we need to prepare for it. And, and I think the commissioners were still in this UNFCCC framing of, oh, we all we have to do is get more serious and we'll be able to reduce fast enough. And I think that's why you see the, the C as the, as the, the first strategy and the care framing. But I also think it's really important to acknowledge that this report is an important step in the direction of saying we are going to need to deal with overshoot. So, um, would I have been most comfortable with something that was more emphatic and more ambitious about the agenda? Yeah. Do I think that this has the potential to move the needle? I hope it does. And I hope that this is kind of building momentum for a more serious discussion about what we do about overshoot. Okay. Josh. Josh. So, Chris, first, thank you very much for the report and your efforts in it. I agree that this helps to identify where things are likely headed. What seems to be missing 
is the quantification, and it's good to follow an economist, Ron, of the social costs of the overshoot, particularly military costs from increased warfare, uh, migration control costs, emergency response costs. Those probably dwarf the cost transitions that Ron was talking about. So I encourage any follow-up work to actually focus on the opportunity costs that the overshoot implies. That leads to two related suggestions, which are that the question of the politics um, assumes two problems. The first problem is, is we don't have a meaningful liability mechanism. It's actually not about distribution, it's a liability. Liability isn't a transfer of wealth, it's a compensation for the forced removal of wealth. And the overshoot point is only going to drive the loss and damage discussions much farther and make it much more likely that we see serious conflict over not the redistribution, but actual payment to try to limit what would otherwise be the transfer payments required to compensate. The last is just that the politics that suggesting are intractable assumes lack of leadership. Um, leadership can dramatically change the trajectories of what countries are willing to do. And I wish that the commission had said more about how leadership could actually avoid mitigation deterrence concerns while also promoting transitions of the kinds that make the most cost-effective sense and the most timely changes. Those, so those are the three basic things I wanted to focus on are, you know, the, the need to focus on the opportunity cost economics, the liability and political concerns, and the lack of leadership. I don't disagree with any of those. One of the interesting features of these conversations is that they're rooted in a, in, a, in a fabric that has a lot of distrust, especially distrust of rich country proposals to fix things. That, that level of distrust can be overcome to some extent with, with good leadership approaches to make sure that everybody has a chance to be a part of the conversation. And, you know, Jesse Reynolds, who spoke to you guys earlier, has transitioned out of the overshoot to the decimals project, which is intended to stimulate the geoengineering research in the Global South. And there's a really important role for that. It's important to recognize, as you know, several of the recent comments have, that that the problems that that are preventing action on this aren't the sort of rational evidentiary ones. It really is politics, the concern about what's a just outcome of who's using this agenda in order to advance narrow personal interests that, that aren't really the global interests. And if we live in a world with more definitive leadership, with a clear-eyed focus on the, on the real issues, we'd be having a very different conversation. important to move the needle, and I think baby steps can play a big role in this, even if they're not the kind of transformational change in thinking that might make things go a lot faster. 
again, that's why starting with the realities, but without the quantification of the economic costs is still helpful. But the one thing that you might think about, again, for further work is responding to the narrative about um, the rich countries created this problem. They're not paying liability. SCE is just getting them off the hook on the cheap. And that's actually a significant moral concern. And I don't know how one responds to it other than the pessimism that if we don't let them off the hook on the cheap, more people will suffer. But the consequence of doing that is actually to potentially generate political solutions that nobody wants, such as warfare. One of the interesting things that was mentioned to me when I was talking to someone about it is that there are no really developing countries or countries of the South. The ones who are most vulnerable were really pushing for intervention and raising the issue. Um, and, And it's a little bit surprising that those who will be most impacted aren't I mean, I guess they haven't had an opportunity to be engaged enough, but you would think they would be hearing more about it. And so it would be raising the issue for consideration. So very interesting. Well, certainly, if you look at the commissioners, the majority are from the Global South. And this report is a chance for them to be on the record and advocating for additional research in solar geoengineering. Okay. Herb, you have another question? Uh, Listening between the lines, I think there's a lot less daylight between your perspective and ours than the Overshoot Commission's perspective and ours. And I, I appreciate that. Are we healthy plan HPAC? The A to me is the, the key thing, the action. We were established two years ago to do more than discuss and debate and learn, even though we've had some incredible meetings with folks like yourself. And so looking forward, I guess I have two sort of questions. You mentioned at the very beginning there was a, another report that come, that's coming out that may advance this agenda. Are you aware of any other reports, institutions, people, countries <laughs> that would be supportive in moving the, you know, we call it a kind of climate triad. You call it care. You know, we, we call it basically, you know, emission reductions, removal and cooling. You know, at the upcoming copper and any other forum could, could move the agenda forward. And it may be that you are aware of, of one or more, but you're not comfortable saying them publicly. So you could say that and then tell Mike you know, or whomever. Privately. <laughs> the second question is specific. A couple of us have been kicking around the idea, you know, simple to come up with ideas like this, that what's missing is an international scale and scope uh, NGO that advocates for emergency cooling in the context of emission reduction and adaptation and all the other things that you and I and, you know, in the Overshoot Commission report advocates that there doesn't, I mean, there's silver lining in the U.S. and they operate a little bit internationally. But when I look at to see, for example, the Human Rights Council of the U.N. is about to issue a report on human rights and geoengineering that the draft basically says that geoengineering is incompatible with human rights. I mean, as I interpreted it, the African Climate Summit, the, there were 500 NGOs that you know, came out uh, two weeks ago totally against geoengineering. And I don't see any, any countervailing uh, you know, ongoing entity. You know, we try to do as the little we can do. We're volunteers. You know, we have our lives. You know, we, none of us, well, won't speak for anybody else. I certainly don't have any particular influence over elites and so forth. So, I mean, do you have any thoughts about 
whether attempting to create such an institution, which of course would take money and support, may be worthwhile efforts. So anyway, those are sort of two related questions. How do we move the ball forward is the broader question. Yeah. Well, my personal hope is that this report of the Overshoot Commission is a meaningful step in the direction of increasing discussion about funding for research in this area. And the answer to your question about are there other high-level groups that are ready to put big funding into this? I, I don't believe there are. You know, there's the recent report from OSTP about developing a national-scale program in the U.S. This decimals program that I mentioned is is putting a tiny amount of funding into encouraging uh, researchers in the Global South to be involved in the agenda. But I think there's a very real sense in which this report is kind of, you know, day one of the effort to build the kind of institutions you're talking about. Just one quick follow-up. I didn't see in, in the report or the press conference anything about the future role of the Overshoot Commission itself. Are they staying in operation? And if so, to, to lobby or to do other reports or what? That's to be decided. The, the commission was convened to do this one report, and there hasn't been any decision about what the follow-ons might be. Well, I think they said they were going to COP28 to make a presentation. I, uh, they have a presentation at COP28, yeah. I mean, there, there, there will be some investment in presenting the report, whether there's additional work that goes beyond the report has not been decided. So let me recommend again that the commission take on the job if or get people to task it with taking on the job of cost estimating all of the opportunity costs of the different choices, which will then make actual control of carbon emissions look potentially not sufficient. But geoengineering is probably going to be, again, the least cost fastest cost avoider, again, that's just going to push the moral hazard issue of taking low-cost solutions to the problem. But if if there's a meaningful liability mechanism, estimating those costs really would be helpful. Okay. Robert, do you uh, want to? Chris, your perspectives in this conversation have been just extremely helpful in helping to frame the debate, because one of the problems in the debate is that the emission reduction alone community have as one of their primary slogans, follow the science. And I think that what you've been explaining is that if we do follow the science, then the need for albedo enhancement is is a clear priority. So it, it's like an anomaly in the scientific paradigm of the the idea that we can address climate change just by cutting emissions. So the opening up that question of how do we get an evidence-based, there was an earlier comment that people wish to ignore evidence. And that's not really a sustainable, uh, tenable approach, because if you just say, you know, we're, we're not going to consider the facts of the matter because we've, we've already made up our minds, then the research comes in you know, other people in the public say, hey, but but what about this? You know, you're just put, pushing a political agenda that's that's ideological, that's not based on 
evidence and, and facts and, and reason and science. So so I think it's it's really helpful to uh, to open up that question about you know what does the science really say? And, yeah, thank you for the comment and and to make sure that the science has a chance to answer as many of the questions as possible. Last comment. I'm sorry to you know make so many comments, but the as as I put in the chat there, the Arctic Momentum Group, the Finnish uh, youth group, has been very very hopeful sign and the excellent material, excellent video, an introduction to their conference that I think. Uh, hits the nail on the head in terms of you know what many of us have been saying and also i mean to just raise the issue many we, we keep talking about the climate you know the natural science but again from a social science perspective the the greater danger may indeed be you know social collapse you know if we don't get a handle on this quickly uh, the situation with with continued you know increasing disasters and climate refugees i mean we're already seeing you know, Europe and the U.S. and other advanced countries, you know, put walls around themselves to prevent more immigration. I mean, a lot of it is violence and failed states and so forth. But but the climate is 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 increasingly a major factor. So I just I just wanted to raise the talk about you know democracy and social justice and climate justice that I, I'm very partial to. If we don't move fast enough to to tourniquet as as Robert Tulip has 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 offered. On the on the bleeding planet Earth, quickly we may see a situation where we're going to have increased fascism and authoritarianism and and collapse states and violence and you know just just degradation of human civilization as we know it. So you know I, I hate to leave us with that thought, but hopefully Chris, you'll have the last word. So, <laughs> but um, <laughs> it is a serious problem. Well, uh, just as a closing comment, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for all of questions and comments and personally i think it's really important that we do transition the conversation about climate from the paradigm of saying oh we can decarbonize fast enough and that that's where we should focus to having one that really has a balanced consideration of doing what we can in decarbonization but looking at the ways that we might control overshoot and i I feel like that reframing you know, feels to me like the big contribution of the of the recent era, and hopefully it opens a pathway to many of the kinds of considerations that, that have been raised in the points that many of you made. And I, that's what I hope is we get a chance to really have a serious consideration of of what overshoot means and what we're going to do about it. Really, very fortunate to have been associated with a high-level group that that is trying to take the issue seriously. And I think the really incremental nature of the report should be understood as a, as a reflection of how challenging it is to move the needle in the political environment that we're in and, and not reflecting a lack of appreciation that but the problem is really serious and, and demands much more ambitious action than has been brought forward so far. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for a wonderful discussion. It's been very interesting to have you participate in. And I agree. I mean, it's interesting that they uh, put it on the agenda so, so well. I think I wrote you that there was one thing that it might have been interesting to do instead of, say, cut emissions was uh, what a colleague of mine from 
Arizona State says it was formerly high in British Petroleum. And he said the trouble with saying cutting emissions is if you cut emissions before you cut demand, you're going to have riots in the street. And so what you really need to do is cut cut demand. And the way you cut demand is to deploy, deploy, deploy um, all the new technologies as fast as you can. Make that happen fast, which is hard. It's happening, but make but reasons it's hard. And so then it could have been deploy, deploy the first one. And so the type, the acronym could have been DARE or something like that, which was interesting because the report was a bit daring in that sense. I noticed yesterday that Ron DeSantis said that if he's elected, gasoline will be two dollars a gallon in twenty twenty six. And I, I thought the only way you could conceivably do that would be to have massive penetration of electric vehicles so that the demand for gasoline goes down. <laughs> Right. Thanks, everybody. Okay. Thank you very much.